Welcome to Closing Crawl, a fan-made Clone Wars recap podcast. I'm Matt Hayward, but my friends call me the representative from Naboo in Burlingame, California. Drew in Chicago. I come for the laser sword-wielding space ninjas, but I stay for the supply chain logistics and macroeconomics. This is Jared Wadsworth from the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm going to use my once-in-a-lifetime ability to become a master juggler somewhere during this episode, and then you'll never hear about it ever again. This is McCormick in Chicago, and I was excited to watch the live-action Ewok movies that released this week, but much like the complaints from my exes, I didn't last very long. Getting the explicit tag already. <laughs> oh, you should have heard the other one that I ran by Drew that I didn't say. <laughs> this was definitely the more PG-13 one. <laughs> this week, we're recapping Season 3, Episode 3, Supply Lines. Uh, our Jedi fortune cookie for this week is Where There's a Will, There's a Way. Where there's a will, there's a way. A completely new phrase invented entirely for this show. We return to a time near the start of the series where we can be a prequel to both Ambush and the Ryloth arc combined in one sleek athletic package. The radio announcer chimes in to tell us of the situation on Ryloth, under siege from the droid army, where Cham Syndulla and the unfortunately named Jedi Master I'm a Gun Die attempt to hold out as supplies run low. With the Republic fleet near Ryloth unable to penetrate the blockade, the Jedi ask Senator Organa to go to the neutral system of Toydaria and strike a bargain with King Katunko to allow Republic relief forces to stage from there. Representative Binks is already there to help. Our Republic heroes start their meeting with the king but are interrupted by Trade Federation Senator Lot Dodd, sent by Count Dooku after he learns of the mission. King Katunko is initially in favor of helping Senator Organa, but Organa failed to mention the Separatist blockade. Katunko does not want to take sides in the larger war, so puts off a decision and asks the senators to argue their positions in court. Or calls on the giant, in more ways than one, space-time TM form of Ornfrita to call for assistance from Toydaria on behalf of his people. Senator Dodd sticks with the there's a war on and you're neutral strategy. What makes a man turn neutral? Katunko announces he must keep Toydaria neutral, but after the public discussion ends, he tells Senator Organa that he is moved by the plight of the Twi'leks. Organa can use Toydaria to carry the supplies they brought with him to Ryloth, but only if they don't reveal Toydaria's involvement. Organa decides to let Jar Jar... Jar Jar? At a fancy dinner in order to distract everyone and make his escape. Turns out he's... Turns out Jar Jar is an amazing juggler. The Republic transports leave without anyone seeing them out of the window, which is how one normally detects ships leaving a planet. Meanwhile, on Ryloth, the battle rages. The good guys are trapped by droid forces and trying to wait for supplies and reinforcements, with tension rising between Cham Syndulla and Master Dai. They develop a plan to allow Syndulla, with, along with his partisans and their families, to escape. They'll load their last gunship with explosives, cause a landslide, block most of the way in or out of their defensive position, and fight the droids to the last. The Twi'leks escape over the mountains as Master Dai and Captain Keeley make a final stand to prevent the droids from catching them. They manage to hold out long enough for supplies to arrive. They are sadly killed. As Organa and Jar Jar bid for fair, as Organa and Jar Jar bid farewell to the Toydarians, Senator Dodd accuses them of violating the treaties and supplying the Twi'leks. Organa says they should bring proof of this before the Senate. Before they go, King Katunko mentions he may need to reconsider his position of neutrality. Senator Organa says Master Yoda will be happy to hear this as we reach the end. 
at the start of this, I just want to note that it is super confusing where in the timeline this episode takes place. If you're not paying close attention, you're not going to figure it out. You're going to wonder why we're doing all of this with the Toydarians again. This is especially weird because nowadays we have a timeline provided by Lucasfilm that says, hey, this is where this episode goes. It goes right before Ambush. But when this aired, no one had that. I watched the episode three times and was in the midst of writing up a bullet about how the Republic must be really bad at holding on to territory before I realized, oh, <laughs> wait, this is like literally occurs 10 minutes before the events of Ambush begin. I did the same thing. I was like, this is Geonosis all over again. What is so wrong with the Jedi and the Republic that they can't hold on to something? And then at the end, I was like, wait, does this happen before Ambush? Either that or nothing makes sense anymore and we're all taking crazy pills. And I should also note that while not actually named in the episode, we created a red shirt Jedi master and named him I'm a gun die. In the episode, he's just master die. And boy, does he. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> it was a competency uh... for him. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the episodes are just like super cheery. Hey, everything's going to be okay. But this one just felt really dark. Wow. It's heavier than I thought. We didn't get a whole lot of hope, but we did get a great comedy routine from Jar Jar. What was the, what's that um, movie with the clown at the at a uh, concentration camps? It the day. <laughs> <laughs> I think was it like the day the clown cried? It was Jerry Lewis's movie. Yeah, it was Jerry Lewis. Yeah, no, Jar Jar never... is Roberto Bertinini. What is his name? Roberto Roberto Benini from Yeah, Life Is Beautiful. Just ugh. It's possible Jar Jar was modeled after Roberto and make love to me. I don't. I only heard the beginning of what Hayward said and the end of what Jared said, and I'm interested in both statements. (laughs) Do you have a pamphlet? I would subscribe to it. I will subscribe to both of what you said. (laughs) What I said was, I never want to hear Jar Jar tell me he's going to lay me down in the firmament and make love to me. I had the relatively less stellar comment that it is plausible that Jar Jar is based off Roberto Benini's Oscar acceptance speech. Both good, but Jared wins. (laughs) Gold star for Jared. (laughs) While the darkness is continuing and we see an admiral die on space-time, trademark, I love that the admiral tells the Jedi that things are going badly. They're getting murked out there. And Obi-Wan and Mace both have to pause to consider what he's saying. Like, they can't quite process what's happening. It was possibly, like, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. These guys are just not exactly Alexander the Great out here. Some of this might be leadership from the top. After they take their moment to think, Yoda weighs in, (laughs) having just read his How to Appear Smart in Meetings book, and says, Trapped on Toydaria, Master D is. Yes, we just saw your fleet commander get killed. Sherlock Holmes, Master Yoda, is not. (laughs) He wasn't killed. He was just on board a ship that wasn't doing very well. I'm sure he got off and everything is fine. Jared, do we see him in later episodes? In answer to that question, I'm just going to note that apparently that character is named Admiral Dao, D-A-O, because it's an anagram of D-O-A. I think we're going to see him again, guys. I got a good feeling about him. (laughs) Force ghost all the way, Matt. I'm right there with you. (laughs) Once we learn that we're trapped on Ryloth and Master Dai is going to live up to his name unless we send help, we 
ask Bail Organa to intervene. We also learn that Jar Jar Binks is already on his way to help. Sorry, that's the representative from Naboo. Yes, the representative from Naboo, a.k.a. Jar Jar Binks. There's a fun moment of levity where, right, where Organa's, oh, well, I'm sure that will go very well. Padme Amidala is extremely competent. And they're like, no, no, it's Representative Binks. They say representative. <sighs> pause, 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 pause. Binks. <laughs> Like, these are Jar Jar's friends. Does he know that they talk about him like this? They have literally anyone else in the universe they can send. There's a lot of senators. We have a Senator Mon Mothma. She's around. We could send her. They could always send another Grand Ambassador. Actually, Grand has uh, embargoed all (laughs) off-world missions. But Jar Jar did sound better this time. Yes, this is the the triumphant return of Ahmed Best to the role of Jar Jar Binks after uh, several episodes with replacement Jar Jar. It's good to have him back. It was surprisingly noticeable, and it felt better. It felt like not trying to be Jar Jar, but it was just Jar Jar. Funny-sounding Muppets. He had some very funny line reads in the dinner scene. The dinner scene is just a great set of line reads. Right after Organa leaves, we we cut to Count Dooku's fleet, and there's like a weird Dooku cameo where he shows up for two lines in this episode for some reason. I loved this part because he's got... Like a Segway model, Lazy Susan meditation platform with running lights. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. He doesn't have to do anything. It just swivels like a Bond villain chair. Where does he get the budget for that? Did it cut into his bifurcated, fully lit escape chute budget? Does he only have (laughs) one escape chute now? I'm sure the Lazy Susan just opens directly into the escape chute. That's what the running lights are for. When they barge in on him to give him the news that they've intercepted this transmission, he's this better be good. (laughs) (laughs) So salty. Like almost caught him just like rotating his hips and just spinning around over and over again on his his meditation (laughs) platform. And he was real mad. Oh my God. What if he was on like one of those yoga ball chairs? He's just got this like weird bounce. Good for his sciatica. (laughs) Either that or he just got off his exercise ball chair. He was like, man, if the droids ever see me on that thing, I'm going to have to destroy all of them. I do it for my posture. (laughs) (laughs) My core is very important to being a Sith Lord. (laughs) Soon enough, we're on Toydaria. Senator Organa and Jar Jar Binks attempt an international incident by blowing past some guards who have announced to them that our laws of hospitality demand that we offer assistance but this planet is closed to off-worlders this was a weird statement and i went back to try and see what was going on in the world around this time and the uh, immigration debate in the united states was really heating up and particular governor jan brewer of arizona had just signed State Bill 1070 into law, which was the so-called Papers, Please law. This closed border thing was a little bit weird. I really appreciate the fact that after 2009, we never had immigration problems in this country ever again. We fixed it. Yep. Done and fixed with the help of both of Nemoidian Senator Lot Dodd's real-life namesakes. Trent Lott and... 
And Chris Dodd. Chris is, Dodd. Is who Lot Dodd was named after because <laughs> why not? George Lucas thought that would be fun. Uh, and they were both pro-immigration reform, despite being on opposite sides of the aisle. Back to the Star Wars universe, there, there was some stunning arrogance where these customs officers or whatever, hey, we'll give you whatever you need, but you, you can't leave the platform. And Organa just walks by them. I appreciated the fact that Jar Jar actually big-timed someone, and they let it happen. Jar Jar rolls well throughout this episode. I also like that they get into the Senate chamber and Jar Jar's like screaming from down the hallway. He's, hello, where's the king? And then Organa's just, let me do the talking. And then they get onto this platform that immediately raises up and Jar Jar's just, hello, I'm Jar Jar. And it was like, God damn it, Jar Jar. You're the worst. Words. There's uh, King Katunko and he has some counselors. Organa lays out the problem that people on Ryloth are starving and we need to bring them some supplies. One of Kentuko's ministers says, compassion is a sacred Toydarian value. And you can also hear muttering voices in the background expressing opinions both pro and con. It was interesting that they were going out of their way to portray the Toydarians as not as a monolith. I don't know about that, though, because it seemed like whoever spoke the latest is who they agreed with. There was some like real politic consideration among the Tidarians. Usually there's a protagonist and an antagonist in Star Wars, where there's the people who are on the right side of things, there are the people on the wrong side. Whereas this time, the Tidarians actually had a realistic conversation about these are these things that we hold sacred, like these are our principles, but there are real consequences for us adhering to those principles. Are we prepared to make these kind of sacrifices I did love the fact that Lot Dodd said perhaps he failed to pay attention in Senate orientation, and it's both the like most and least Star Wars thing ever said on this show. There is an, an interesting back and forth between Lot Dodd and Bail Organa, where Lot Dodd protests Nemoidian and Trade Federation involvement with the Separatists. He says something like, We have nothing to do with the Separatists. Newt Gunray is an extremist. His views do not reflect those of the Trade Federation. And Bail Organa responds with, Perhaps not, but you can understand the confusion. This, to me, read as a very awkward Senator Organa just uh, accusing all Nemodians of uh, being responsible for the actions of one of them. Yeah, this was gross because in the previous scene that Count Dooku is going to send a message to Lot Dodd, we absolutely know that the Separatists are in bed with Lot Dodd. But at the same time, Lot Dodd's line of rhetoric here is the line of rhetoric we hear in the real world a lot, which is, hey, you shouldn't judge an entire cultural group by the extremists in their group. Lot Dodd is using that as cover here. And he's actually the thing Organa is saying he is, which struck me as a not great message to be promulgating into the brains of your audience. Be suspicious of claims that people should not be judged as extremists. We've heard like Mitch McConnell say the exact same thing about Enrico Terrio. And wouldn't we have all been better if we could have directly tied? Like we didn't have to pretend that the Republicans weren't in bed with Proud Boys. Drew's going to get us all killed, isn't he? Yeah. I didn't understand what is the leverage here. Why did the Toydarians want to back down based on what Newt Gunray was saying? I think I've got a read on this. Does anybody else have one? Oh, please, you go first so we can shoot you down after. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Thanks. That's great. Theoretically, the Trade Federation is on the side of the Galactic Republic, but they don't want Tidaria 
to jeopardize the Tidarian neutrality, which would interrupt the Trade Federation's trade because the Separatists would all of a sudden attack Tidaria. That's going to negatively impact their bottom line. A situation desirable to no one. He explicitly says that if Toydaria gets involved in this, then the Trade Federation will have to stop trading with them. If the Trade Federation is making money off of the Alliance of Neutral Systems, and then they're turning right around and handing that to the Separatists, the Neutral Systems are indirectly prolonging the war by remaining neutral. Yes. Well, Lair again does have one giant ace up his sleeve here. Which is a, a video presentation. Oh my god! Did, did you just say Leia Organa? Because I don't think she's here. <laughs> Bail Organa has has a giant ace up his sleeve, or at least up his space time. I love how you said giant. Such size, such power. Can we do a little call and response here? Sure. <laughs> Orfrita is so fat. How, how fat, fat is, is he? he? <laughs> He's so fat that his hologram can cause an eclipse. How fat is he? Uh, thanks, Matt. Oh. I just, when I was watching this, like the lights came down, and I don't know that I've ever seen them actually throw the shades down so they could have a space time. And it just made me think that they were making it like, like taking a real shot at Ornfrita. <laughs> In this episode, his corpulence is immediately put into juxtaposition with the starving children on Ryloth. He was kind of more formally corrupt when we met him in the Ryloth arc. But he also destroys Palpatine's executive washroom on the reg, so... <laughs> yeah, he can't be all bad. <laughs> He's a foundational member of the Resistance. I would love to talk about this more, but can you give me five minutes? It's wafer thin. <laughs> <laughs> all the relief supplies you sent were colon blow. <laughs> so I don't want to say that Lot Dot is right. He's right. Like, this absolutely is a military operation. It's not a humanitarian one. They're actively supplying the Twi'lek Maquis and the Jedi and clone army. And it's no wonder they're neutral systems. Like, from an objective view, this is pretty scummy of the Galactic Republic. They're using the Tidarians, and they're trying to pretend they're the good guys, but they're actually being not okay about this whole thing. This is actually a military operation. Yes, obviously the Trade Federation are the bad guys and we boo, but you're not being very good friends to the Tidarians by blockade running through their system and are trying to maintain their neutrality for a military operation. This is totally deceitful on the part of the Galactic Republic. They're being jerks. But also do the do the Tidarians not get like a news feed? Like literally the radio announcers just, this is what's happening. Do they not get that? Like, well, they don't allow off-worlders yeah. on the planet. It's hard to get news through. And they also didn't pay for the serious package after their first free month. So, mm. you know, like, who does, though? Am I it's right? It's going to limit their knowledge. Yeah. There's <laughs> nothing a little music can't help. So when we cut back to the planet and Jedi Master Wisa gonna die, gives a plan to the clone troopers and he's just, hey, let's, let's blow up the rocks. You could get hit by a boulder. And the clone trooper that's receiving the instruction. It felt like Kiff from Futurama. We lost all remaining food and oxygen, Captain, as well as our XM radio antenna. It was just like, yes, sir. <laughs> I just, yeah. So Did Jedi I'm Master Weezy Gonna Die was wearing a lot of allure. <laughs> Did he ask? <laughs> I, 
Captain Keeley to lay out his formal shorts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But the Jedi actually puts his butt on the line for the first time. Have we seen Jedi die on this show before? We have seen Jedi die. We have not seen Jedi die, particularly at the hands of the Trade Federation droid army. Okay. Who, so who's died? Who, did East Koth bite it? Not our Veb, for example. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nandor the Relentless. Good for him. That guy was great. May he rest in peace. <laughs> but yeah, uh, people die at the hands of big bads, not at the hands of droids. Right. But this felt like one where the Jedi was standing with the clones more in solidarity and as a peer as opposed to a commander. He did. He basically didn't say, yes, you go down there and lay those bombs. I will stand at the top of this mountain and make sure the civilians get away. Now, a couple episodes ago at the closing arc of season two, the admiral stays on the ship as it's going down and Anakin are like, come on, let's get out of here. And he says, you would as a Jedi would never understand this, but I'm staying with the ship. And it seems like Master Amaganadai understands it. He tells Cham's second in command. War turns promises into hopes. I wish it wasn't so. Tell him. War turns promises into hopes, by the way. That is a Jedi fortune That is a Jedi fortune cookie. Interesting production note on that one, though, is they cut this for time, but he also told Cham's second in command, tell Kit Fisto, ah, he knows. And that was just like a really nice, they obviously had a real thing. (laughs) Yeah, he has to tell Kit Fisto something, but he just never gets the chance. He never gets the chance. That's the greatest love story. And we already know he's force sensitive, so it can't be that. That's the only thing it can be. That's what always happens. Just movies throughout time, whenever someone has not been able to tell someone else something, that's what it is. I did love the War Turns. Wait, what was it? It was Turns Promises into Hopes. War Turns Promises into Hopes. I, I know that we're getting into some very anti-American sentiment here, what with the show your papers bill. It definitely smacked of the way we treated the Kurds in like the late, like mid to late 90s as allies and then just abandoned them or... Even the Rojavans in Northwest Syria in 2017, where you have people that are counting on us that are theoretically our allies, and then we just take off when it's convenient for us to do. This episode had a lot of real life stuff that kind of kept coming back to me. Join us next week with our special guest, Noam Chomsky. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, if only. You know, when I was working for Staples, he had direct delivery from Staples, so I was able to find his home address and phone number. (laughs) I'm not sure that's what you should be uh, disclosing on this podcast. That as a, (laughs) you mean, were you authorized to have this information as a Staples employee? Matt, it's fine. No one listens to this podcast. No, no, like I had, I it was just uh, like we used uh, what was it like Salesforce as our CRM, and uh, and so I was just like, huh, who lives in? Cambridge that would order this stuff. And I don't know why, but Noam Chomsky was the only person that I thought of that I would like. I was like, oh, Noam Chomsky orders Staples supplies. And I was like, yep, there he is. That's his home address in Cambridge. Cool. And then I never did anything else with it. Never going to get that sick Benioff sponsorship money if you just say you use Salesforce <laughs> to dox famous people from the local Ah, <laughs> oh, damn it. I forgot to put in our Noom joke with the fat stuff. I think the fact that given the opportunity to dock celebrities you the, the first one you thought of was Noam Chomsky is possibly the best <laughs> thing i've ever learned about you who more famous 
Andrew's uh, Star Maps tour of Cambridge. <laughs> yeah, we could do Larry Diamond, the what the uh, Nobel Prize winning economist. We could do <laughs> Noam Chomsky. If only economy were a science. If only economy were a science. Yeah, man, there's all sorts of cool stuff we could do. Economy is a science, guys. It's the science of economics. Just as an aside, I would heard this great story from a friend of mine, Jared knows this guy, who was telling someone else in a Borders bookstore when that was a thing that existed about how there's no Nobel Prize in economics because Alfred Nobel's wife had an affair with an economist. <laughs> and it turns out that's an urban myth. And like someone overheard them in the store and just pivoted and completely blew up my friend's spot on that. It was just like, that's actually an urban myth. Like, oh, man. <laughs> Well, what are the odds that you're in borders with Ted Snopes? <laughs> Come on, man. Quit that banging. A hat tip to the animators on this one where Bail Organa is supervising the clones loading crates onto the blockade runner. And two clones make eye contact over the crate. Can you believe this guy? And it was just one of the most wonderful little moments that I've ever seen on this show. It killed me. It seemed a little bit weird in that scene that the clones were doing the longshoremen. Isn't that like a union job normally? I guess you couldn't you couldn't farm it out to the uh, to the Tidarian. What do you call those guys? Tidarians. <laughs> I guess longshoremen. Oh yeah, yeah. So you said it already. Mm -hmm. I'm really on the ball tonight. But yeah, I guess you can't tonight. use you. <laughs> You can't use union labor if you're actively smuggling things, maybe? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, yeah, certainly if we're trying to hide the Toydarian involvement in this whole plan, having the union timesheets lying around is going to be an issue. What did you all think of the way that we get approval here? King Katunko delivers this big impassioned speech about your plight is noble. However, we cannot risk our jeopardy. And then immediately flies over to Organa and is like, all right, here's the black op we're going to be running tonight. But he does it in a wide open airy atrium. <laughs> yeah. It's not exactly back rooms filled with cigar smoke. The whole thing came across as pretty weird to me. It seemed more like uh, we've got to get this information across in 30 seconds without coming up with a new room for these people to be in because we're at our budget for this episode. So this is how we're doing it. We need to distract Lot Dodd from the fact that we're staging our goods here. And the way we do this is we host a formal dinner with King Katunko and Jar Jar and the representatives of the Trade Federation. Can we just talk about the restaurant a little bit? We eat at a table and they suspend it high up and it spins or something. <laughs> Hovering table. It was more about the ambiance than the meal itself. The, the meal was just like fruits and turkey legs. But the, the table spinning 30 feet in the air certainly seemed normal to all of them. I never learned just float there. I just like the salty Tidarian guards who are just super contemptuous of everything. <laughs> Do you, are those the same guys that Jar Jar big timed back on the docks? <laughs> Maybe. That would explain it because every time he did something, they were just like, oh, God, this freaking guy again. They're in an observation tower, and Jar Jar has to keep the Toydarians from seeing the Republic ships take off. His strategy for this is he's going to gather up all the plates on the table and then do 
the most complicated juggling slash plate spinning routine ever. Excuse me, it's a conceptual art piece. That's that right. Gungan folk art. He even has a, <laughs> an artist statement. So what Cirque du Soleil show do we think Jar Jar would best fit in? I thought maybe O because he's aquatic, but that doesn't really come up here. It definitely seemed like the Chinese table dancing to me. Oh, yeah. Where they lay on their back and they just roll a table with their feet. I don't know. Okay, time out. Matt, can we go to GM Corner for this? Yeah, always. Greetings. It's a pleasure to meet you. Awesome. What kind of stats does Jar Jar have that he's able to do this? These ins- like he's this guy like steps in poop constantly, and yet somehow he's able to have a Vegas level show off the cuff. It's not just that he steps in poop. It's a literally he like falls getting onto the table. He literally cannot climb from the chair to the table without knocking stuff over and then proceeds to knock things over while grabbing everyone's plates. And then, yes, then performs said mystical feat. He, he clearly has some sort of weird six die specialization in plate juggling. Decks of 1D, but plate juggling of 7D plus 2. Yeah, this is what happens when your little brother is not really quite old enough to play, and he puts all his character points in this thing because he thinks it will be cool, and then tries to use it in every scenario. And you're just like, if, if you want to survive in D&D 4th Edition, you're going to need to min-max. Like, the challenges <laughs> scale in a way that if you don't take these feats, you're going to be screwed. And he's like, nope, plate juggling. <laughs> Nope, I'm just putting all my skill points into non-weapon proficiencies. That's the way you do it. But also not perception, intelligence, or wisdom. It is really impressive. In fact, it's so impressive that I'm actually upset that we finally made Jar Jar good at something. And the thing he's good at is amazing. And the only reason it exists is because he has to keep people from looking out of a window to notice ships. Which is just a ridiculous thing to need to do in the Star Wars universe. Yeah. So what you're, what you're saying is Dave Filoni could only come up with a scenario for his little brother's skill set one time. And <laughs> after that, he was like, I, I just, I can't, man. I'm not that creative. But also, couldn't the ships just have rode along the surface for a few miles and then ascended? Why did they have to ascend next to the tower to the point that the tower is like shaking from the shock waves? Are you saying there's a Z-axis on planet Tiberia? (laughs) What? Yes. Come on, man. This is like Bugs Bunny level stuff we're dealing with here. You you can't analyze it on terms other than Wiley Coyote physics rules. It's totally fine to keep something super lighthearted because that's clearly what happens for the rest of the episode. No, not actually. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so speaking of tone whiplash, we... We find ourselves back on Ryloth, where things are... How's how's the battle going? How would you describe it? Not well. We just talked about the fact that a clone trooper was like, Oh, so this plan where you're sending me to my death. Welcome to the jungle! Did anyone notice the new Separatist ordinance they have in this uh, episode? A grenade? Uh, I I believe they call it a clone popper. (laughs) (laughs) Turnabout is fair play. Well, like, touche, guys. There was a nice little moment where Captain Keeley, he's already gotten shot multiple times, 
but he sees I'm a gun guy holding the line and putting his butt on the line. And, and he gets back up, and you can see a little bit of respect for someone who's consigned him to a horrible death. I don't know. It was just usually you don't see that level of consideration from clones towards Jedi. Right around here, Master D's radio chirps up, and it says, uh, This is Republic Blockade Runner 0909. We have broken through. Did I catch a Niner in there? And then we see the ships flying over, but they look like normal Clone Wars transport ships. This confused me because I thought canonically blockade runners in Star Wars were the Tantive Four Leia ship at the beginning of Star Wars. And at the beginning of the episode, we see Bail Organa in a ship of that class. So I was expecting that to be the blockade runner. What's the story here? In fact, we see Bail Organa on the actual Tantive Four in, in this episode. So... Same ship. Tantivo. Curse you, Star Wars radio drama. <laughs> this this ship will record your favorite television programs and allow you to skip commercials. <laughs> I think we can go with the concept that Blockade Runner is a conceptual class more than it is an actual class of ship. Uh, the ships we see as Blockade Runners in this episode are Pelta-class transport ships, which we've seen several times throughout the series, as you have mentioned. Bail Organa's Corellian Corvette was certainly originally referred to as a blockade runner in the script before we had a name for it. But uh, you could run a blockade with a lot of different things. All right. Also, Tantivo should be a new t-shirt, so just run that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go online and buy the uh, the trademark rights to the, the Tantivo little square thing with the, the TV with the feet. That can't be more than $50,000. All of TiVo's IP. <laughs> I think you've added a few too many zeros there. Hey, as someone who still has a TiVo, yeah, we have a TiVo and we get the DVDs from, like, the physical DVDs from uh, Netflix. Netflix by mail. Netflix by Look, mail. Once yeah. you once you paid for the lifetime subscription on your TiVo, you got to milk it for all it's worth. Oh, yeah, we're riding that thing till it's just a smoldering crater. It, does it do HD? Yep. The original didn't, but they didn't make HD ones. Yeah, not not Artivo because Artivo is nine years Screaming, old at this point. Screaming, kill me every night. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, kill me. It's very old. It's almost gained sentience at this point. You got to wipe that hard drive periodically. I was, it, it's R two. <laughs> Speaking of the Tantive Four, which does appear in this episode, we'll also note that originally the Tantive Four appeared in Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, but. It was a different model, and we have now retconned it to not being the Tantive 4 at the end of Episode 3. That was, in fact, the Tantive 3. Boo. Is that kind of like how we've retconned that Boba Fett ship Slave 1 that clearly was destroyed at the end of Season 2 by crashing off screen and exploding in a giant ball of fire is somehow still just Slave 1? Yeah, I, I think so. Cool. I guess uh, maybe like the Mandalorian, right, as long as you've got the Beskar gear shift ball, it's the same ship. <laughs> we, we have an answer to the ship of Theseus problem. It's as long as you have the ball. Yep. <laughs> same ship. Yeah. Just it's Rajal Ghul. He's not actually immortal. It's just titular. And <laughs> that's why everyone thinks he's immortal. I thought you were just saying that there's some sort of Genesis pit, but for ships. <laughs> No, you just throw one of Rachel Ghoul's balls into a Genesis pit. It's all the same guy. <laughs> so speaking of the afterlife and immortality, Master Dai 
is shot in the back a few times and he collapses to the ground and is very corporeal. So he, he doesn't become a force ghost? Well, normally, Luke, when a Jedi's die, we just sort of vanish. Jedi don't become force ghosts. Yeah. E- explain. I thought that was the entire point of Obi-Wan going to Tatooine. Episode three at the end. Yeah, he had been like Master Qui-Gon Jinn had made c- contact from like the force beyond. And so Obi-Wan was going to go try to figure out how to become it's a force ghost. Yoda, who Master Qui-Gon makes contact to. But yes. Okay. Wait, so does uh, I'm going to get fired from the, my own podcast here. But does Qui-Gon leave behind a meat sack or does he force ghost? Oh, yeah, he's, no, meat, he's sack. meat sack. He does not force ghost. Hmm. I don't want to get spoilery here, but we'll get there. Right now, Jedi do not force ghosts. I'm like super excited that there's a big piece of canon Star Wars lore that I know absolutely nothing about, apparently. <laughs> this is going to be awesome. We won't get there soon, so don't hold your breath. Yeah, it's in the webisode that came out between seasons five and, and seven. <laughs> no, just at our pace of recording, it's going to be two years from yeah, now. It's before exponential. We- <laughs> We need weekends off, fan. (laughs) (laughs) One day I was walking and I found this big log. Then I rolled the log over. Underneath was a tiny little stick. And I was like, that log had a child. So since we've come to the end of the episode, let's go back and take a look at our Jedi fortune cookie, which, if you'll remember for this episode, is the entirely new concept. Where there's a will, there's a way. I've never heard that before. This one to me feels like the most half-assed uh, Jedi Fortune cookie check. I, we are often using thoughts that are not completely unique to the Star Wars universe by any means, but this is an old English proverb, and by old, like at least the 1600s. This has been around for a while. This is not a new thought. It doesn't seem particularly Jedi. And while I guess it's technically appropriate for this episode, it's appropriate in the sense of something got in the way of our stuff happening and so we had to overcome obstacles which is true for every episode of everything that has a plot yeah but also stay tuned for next week's episode where the jedi fortune cookie is your lottery numbers are 3 17 22 52 and 48 clearly they would be 4 8 15 16 23 and 42 i think this is the second oldest phrase i think the, the oldest being revenge is a confession of pain coined by rybock at survivor series in 2012 as, as jared informed me <laughs> feed him more also jared i'm a little i'm a little disappointed that 1138 were not somehow in the lottery numbers i was making a different reference lost as as i was googling that that joke <laughs> um apparently bray wyatt has appropriated that phrase in, as of late 2019 yeah he did too but ryback said it first is this wrestling yeah sorry yeah i'm also lost drew Continue on. Is Hulk Hogan still still pretty big in the whole wrestling game? Oh, he became a persona non grata for quite a while there. But yeah, I think he's uh, maybe he's back. Noted racist Hulk Hogan is hosting WrestleMania tomorrow night. Good gravy. How about Rowdy Roddy Piper? Note to the audience: WrestleMania was several months ago. (laughs) But tomorrow night when we're recording this, did you say Rowdy Roddy Piper? Oh, yeah, man. One time I saw, like on Saturday afternoon, I saw him beat the heck out of a little person.
It was a <laughs> it was a different time. Yeah, noted racist Roddy Roddy Piper is sadly no longer with us. Feels like wrestling has a lot of noted racists. There's an era. Roddy Roddy Piper, I totally met at the Portland airport once. So that yeah, was, was cool, he nice? Basically. Well, you, I mean, you are white. I, it was a little bit weird. I was I I was in a I was waiting at a gate for a flight and looked around and was like, it's weird. You don't see many guys that age wearing Roddy Roddy Piper t-shirts. And then four <laughs> seconds later, it was like, oh no, that's actually just Roddy Roddy Piper wearing a Rowdy Roddy Piper t-shirt. <laughs> I had a similar, oh shoot, I'm not going to be able to remember the name of the sports guy, but yes, I was eating a hamburger at a place across the street from AT&T Park in San Francisco, and I was thinking, man, that guy is just really tall, and it was a famous pitcher whose name I'll look up and, and drop in in a minute. Randy Johnson? That's who it was. <laughs> the only famous pitcher. He was very tall. Well, super tall. He also famously threw a pitch and killed a bird. That was, was a great video. If you haven't yeah. seen it, you should look it up. Yeah. Well, it's not a great video. It's a video that exists of a bird dying. <laughs> great. So now we've got PETA after us. That bird doesn't die. That bird explodes. Aren't you a vegetarian? <laughs> the bird basically disintegrates. Yeah. I'm a vegetarian, but watch this bird die. <laughs> you know. Yeah, he doesn't want to eat them. He just wants to be cruel to them. I did not want to eat just, the bird yeah, after it exploded. I'm dying. <laughs> Now that we have come to the end, as it were, that I felt like this episode has the problem of many prequels in that we explained a bunch of stuff that didn't really need explaining about how we got to where we were in Ambush and how we got to where we were on the Ryloth arc. We watched those. They were decent episodes. We didn't need someone to tell us how we got there. We know Ryloth is still holding out several months later when we get to those episodes. So obviously they get some sort of supplies through. We, we know Bail Organa doesn't die. We know King Katunko still wants to be friends with the Jedi. So there's not really a lot of stakes here. But we do learn why Han Solo is called that. And that's worth it. <laughs> Can't argue with you there. All right. What was your uh, favorite part of the episode? I guess for me, even though it was a prequel, it was very confusing that it was a prequel, but I liked that they filled in some of the details around the Trade Federation, the Separatists. Once again, we get more examples of the Galactic Republic slash Jedi being so convinced of their righteousness that they're willing to basically ignore everybody else's agency. Not exactly the good guys in this situation. I, I suppose that was actually pretty interesting stuff. As always, my favorite parts of the episode are when I made uh, funny jokes. My favorite part is Jar Jar Master Juggler. Go get him, Jar Jar. In all sincerity, my favorite part of the episode is just how well the beginning of the episode just foreshadowed that darkness was coming. This was not going to be a happy episode. And Jedi Master Weezy Gonna Die is he dies in this episode and he dies heroically and he dies at the side of a clone like he doesn't abandon them he doesn't just leave them to their death and be like yeah you go do your thing and i'm gonna stand up here on a hill and watch he's no he's in it this is the hardest story that i've ever told no below glory happy and then forevermore he's in it to save as many civilian lives as possible and every minute that he can buy them is that many more of them that escape with their lives so he's willing to put his life down and i don't know i just thought that was surprisingly powerful for a one-off episode 
Join us next time when we cover Season 3, Episode 4, Sphere of Influence. You can follow us at Closing Crawl on Twitter. If you like the show and want to help us, give us a rating in iTunes. You can check out our merchandise at bit.ly slash spacetimetm. And thanks as always to Bad Lip Reading for our intro and bumper music. Trivia! Yeah. Like we might be done at this point. <laughs> yeah, tell, tell us about the problem of prequels. I mean, this is how every episode ends. So yeah, I the, feel the like 65 minutes our... up to now is our post-credit sequence, Jared, so make this summary good. <laughs> uh.